Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus in Chicago. As always, you can follow me on LinkedIn and you can see all of the creative work associated with our episodes on our website, onstrategyshowcase.com. As many of you know, I'm a big fan of Doug Holt books, particularly cultural strategy. Doug spent many years as a client-side marketer and in academia. He's been a professor at Harvard and Oxford. He's now based in Bristol, England, and is releasing his third book later in 2022. In addition to his books, there are two articles he published that I find particularly terrific. Uh, They were both published in the Harvard Business Review. The first is Branding in the Age of Social Media from March 2016 and cultural innovation from the September 2020 issue. You can get them at hbr.org. I'll also drop the links in on uh, Douglas's episode page uh, on our website. Now, there are a ton of different theories on the so-called best way to approach strategy development, and I'm not a proponent of any one single direction. In, In my mind, we can learn a lot from each of them. It's really about knowing and understanding what the available tools are that we can apply to our particular brand given its particular goals. So I think the more that we're aware of these different approaches, the better off we are as strategists and marketers and the better off brands that we're associated with will be as a result. In our conversation, Doug and I will talk about Blue Buffalo through the lens of uh, cultural strategy, Jack Daniels, Levi's, Starbucks, Dove, Chipotle. We also talk about purpose brands and challenger brands compared to cultural brands. We'll be right back with Doug Holt after this short message from our sponsor, Work. Shining a light on truly effective work has never been more important, which is why work has reinvented the way effectiveness awards are judged. The work awards for effectiveness in association with Lions are built and benchmarked on the consistent global framework of the creative effectiveness ladder. Every shortlisted entry will receive feedback on how it performed against the ladder's framework. So if you're a marketer or strategist with an example of effective marketing, be sure to enter the 2022 Work Awards for Effectiveness. They're global, open to all, and easy to enter with six different categories to choose from. And at a time when budgets are stretched, they're completely free to enter. Entries are now open and the deadline is March 2nd. Head to work.com backslash awards backslash effectiveness for more details. That's work.com backslash awards backslash effectiveness for complete details. So here's Douglas Holt on cultural strategy. Enjoy. It's probably be good for us to define for, to hear you define for the listeners what what is cultural strategy and, 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 and how is it different? Cultural strategy is the winners, you know, winning cultural advantages instead of competitive advantage, winning cultural markets is about disrupting the market culturally, ideologically, leading, understanding these markets are historical. They're not fixed at all. And they're moved by changes in society, big historical disruptions, technology, economics, demographics, you name it, change culture. And we know that from just from every, all those cultural fields documented it unendingly. So culture is not fixed at all. It's very dynamic in this kind of punctuated way. It's pretty stable for a while. And then it becomes, it, it becomes less effective because of these changes in society, and we need a new version, a 2.0, a 3.0 version of masculinity or whatever it is. And the, the, the brands and people and you know artists and et cetera, politicians 
who understand and lead that new ideology, what I call it cultural disruption, um, become the new dominant brand, become the iconic brand in the in their in their product markets. And because a lot of this in this new book, I trace these dynamics a little bit more carefully, but a lot of the action is going on, of course, outside of the product market, outside of autos or shoes or whatever. So you can you don't need to be, you know, a futurologist. You're in in all of these cases, the the innovator is repurposing content. Um, ideas, product ideas, et cetera, that are already in play, often in subcultures, in niche media, et cetera. And they are driving it, mainstreaming it into their product market and driving it ideologically. So instead of the usual value proposition, oh, we are better in this and this way, and then here agency add some creative, add some emotion, exactly the opposite. You start with the ideology and say, how are we going to express this? How are we going to express this in the product? How are we going to express this in the service? How are we going to express this in our communication, in an ad, et cetera? So it's all driven by the central, the core of the, 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 the proposition isn't the value proposition, it's the ideology. And it's an ideology that's challenging the dominant ideology in the category, be it coffee, be it cars, be it whiskey, whatever it is, all the cases that I've that I've documented. So it's just a very, it's a very different approach focused on a kind of ideological battle that goes on in the category, because in these cultural markets, whoever is, you know, symbol, whoever is the symbol of the dominant ideology controls the category. They're the dominant brand. They're the icon. So that's what you want. And the only way to dislodge the, the incumbent brands is through this disruption model. You can't, you know, outcreate them. You can't like add some new whiz bang feature usually. Unless, you know, if you're tech and, you know, you can you do a you know, technological disruption, fine, but it's very, very hard to, to, to come up with some product improvement that's going to do it. So this is, this is the only game for these kind of markets to really build big new brands or restage uh, brands is through, through this sort of model. The, the argument that I've been making, and you, you read through the, the Harvard Business Review article I wrote in 2016, Branding the Age of, of Social Media, um, is that back we're we're still stuck in this post-war model of marketing where brands could play this role of being um, simply kind of, you know, pull the heartstrings, entertaining and touching uh, us in some way that we go, yeah, you know, all things equal. I, you know, I'll buy that one. I'll buy some Heinz. I'll buy whatever. That's that that is kind of the mass marketing model. That's the old fame game. The old fame game is gone. What I suggest is that there's another game, which I would, wouldn't call fame, I'd call culture, cultural branding uh, and iconic brands, which is to make brands incredibly um, not just famous in kind of a generic way, but really powerful cultural symbols, which is different than just generic fame. Um, but fame, you know, fame comes along with it, but a lot more comes along with it um, in terms of like KPIs and uh, their role in culture. Um, that game, actually, brands can play that even better with social media. So it's so the social media actually make, make cultural branding um, as compared to kind of the old ways of doing, trying to build brands, um, you know, a more powerful, relatively powerful tool. Um, and yet... It, it seems like, you know, big companies, don't, you know, it's very hard. We can talk if you want about why it's so hard for big companies to, to, to execute that, that kind of approach. But that's, that's the argument.
we as an industry have also been advocating and um, advocating for the concept of, of branded content and, and so much money and, and thinking and creativity has gone into developing the branded content, but it seems that most of it fails and most of it fails as evidenced by, you know, you can look at some major pieces of branded content and look how many clicks and plays it got on YouTube compared to some teenager uh, who's uh, squirting Cool Whip in his mouth. It's like people aren't gravitating towards corporate content unless it is massively compelling. And we're, we don't seem to have the uh, the code for that correct yet in terms of what branded content can be. Now, there are, there are, there are always going to be sort of outliers uh, that have been massively successful, but but when we look at the majority, it's it doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't warrant people's attention. Yeah, yeah. I think you know you you mentioned before. So what you know what are the met- you know, branding that works versus branding that's famous? And I think because you're, I mean, you're I think embedded pretty pretty heavily in the, in the ad industry. You know, we think in terms of communications, but if you back out and say, you know, what from a business strategy standpoint, what you know what works in communication as part of the mix. You you and you look at cases. You don't end up saying, "Wow, it's as you say, it's not the you know the big award winning whiz bang uh, uh, cases that that stand out always." Some some are, and some and I've tried to point those out. Like in, in the last book, I use uh, you know the Levi's five hundred one work for here for BBH, which I think is a classic cultural branding case. It's it's renowned, it's great creative, but I to me it's renowned, it's great you know, it's cultural strategy that made it work and live so long, but that's the, that's the exception. And I think, you know, you can prove that out by taking, you know, the, 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 the most successful cases and looking for the counterpoint. So for example, in the more recent HBR article, I use uh, blue Buffalo dog food as an example. So here's a business that came out of nowhere, you know, a little startup that ab- absolutely demolished Three of the biggest, most sophisticated marketers in the world, right? You know, Nestle, Purina, PNG, and Mars own the global dog food business, and they invented the super premium, the most profitable tier of the market. They tried to compete, you know, left and right with the usual, you know, bag of tricks, hiring the trends researchers and whatever else, and and nothing worked. And you know, PNG even left the business. So how how is that possible? You look at Blue Buffalo. And what's amazing is I don't know if you've ever looked at their ads, but yeah. they just make you grimace. They're so they're so bad, um, you know. And but they're so on strategy culturally. They're ones that your your undergraduate students would probably get a C on a project for 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 producing, but they worked brilliantly, <laughs> and it and it left you it left them with a a business that sold uh, it was a General Mills for eight billion dollars. <laughs> so. You know, we have to like we have to pay attention to those kind of cases, and once you do, it becomes very clear like that that this model works. So people, you know, let's pay attention to the data, look at all the cases, and I've put you know many dozens of cases on the table with very very thorough research. Like here's the model, prove it's wrong, (laughs) show me why it doesn't work. So let's talk about it. Let's dig into Blue Buffalo. Let's talk about. So why, why that's a great example of cultural strategy? So dog food went through two and then three of these uh, uh, of these phases from a from an ideological standpoint. So it started with 
mass industrial dog food, the, the Purinas, the world where the, it was just making the brand famous of standardized food, just like you were standardizing coffee and standardizing everything else back in the fifties. And then, um, making the brand famous and not just generically famous, but convincing you that they cared about your dog. So that was all in the, you know, the, all the advertising, we care about your dog. We're going to make great dog food. Trust us. We're the big brand. You won't want to trust the little mom and pops. And that worked for decades and decades to long in the seventies, early eighties came a second wave of um, it's kind of the medicalized uh, version, the sciency version of dog food where they, some brands came in, Hills and some others uh, came in and said, you know, if you really want the best dog food, it has to be the dog food that we have done all this research on, that we've worked with vets to find which is very specific dog food for your specific dog's needs. And you have all this, you know, proliferation of all these specialty dog foods and you had to go to the vets to buy it uh, back in the day and so forth. And so you had this second tier and that Whole, this whole ideology that challenged the original ideology and did very well and established this second tier. However, along came this problem for the whole category. So all the big brands had, you know, had both, both those tiers covered, those the, the three big companies that we mentioned earlier. Um, but along came this huge tectonic challenge to the industrial food system. So dog food is interesting. Pet food is right in the middle of that. We want our pets to be having health, eating healthy food, and actually we don't taste it. So all we're really concerned uh, about is healthy, nutritious food. And so we're buying into it for our families, this incredible critique of the food we eat and trying to adjust all the stuff we buy at the grocery store for ourselves. And yet we're still buying these bags of kibble that are sold to us as if it were 1970s human food, you know, so the huge lag. And so there's this huge cultural opportunity, huge ideological opportunity just sitting there. And you had this subculture on the side. You had all these, um, you know, these alternative uh, mom and pop companies that were exactly on point. Big critics of industrial food, developing dog food that uh, was, you know, with whole, whole ingredients, none of the chemicals, et cetera. Very transparent. They didn't try and sell you on the brand personality everything was reflecting a different ideology, what I call pre-industrial foods ideology. So what's interesting about Blue Buffalo, so you had a bunch of subculture brands, did fine, but they weren't interested in disrupting the mainstream market, going after the big guys. So along comes Blue Buffalo. So they had this whole just damning, you know, these slice of life documentary ads that were so poorly produced, but one after another, just slamming the big three brands and the whole ideological infrastructure, the foundation of these brands. There's nothing they could do because they're tearing about the trust, the, the, the belief in this whole scientific, you know, kibble that we were buying that we thought was so, so good. And once you you kind of bought it, like, oh, God, yeah, I think they're right. And then they trained us to read the ingredient label. Look for this. If they have this, that they're, they're tricking you. Uh, and and through that, and then extending it again into like into the wilderness, into you know being this kind of crazy mythology of you know dogs in the wild, um, they just they just tore apart these brands so that they had had nothing left to stand on. And every one of these the three big companies tried to defend, tried to copy. 
but they only thought about it in terms of it's a trend, it's a value proposition thing. If we just clean up our ingredients a bit, we get rid of the chicken meal and add some whole chicken, we're good. Totally forgot that they you know, invested 20, 30 years as, as, um, propounding this ideology. So nobody's going to like all of a sudden, like I've been buying, you know, these this kibble from 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 Mars or Perina for all these years. And all of a sudden, oh, yeah, we that, that ingredient we had before we changed it. We're all good now. Right. No, I'm wondering, what is it about the Chipotles of the world? The yeah. the uh, the um, of Blue Buffaloes, because these are companies that must start with from the CEO down, from the founders down. This is their founding ideology. This is the reason they exist. And it's tough to get bigger companies to retrofit into that. Yeah. So to get to Chipotle, so Chipotle is part, it's one of, you could probably point to 20 or 30 businesses that were made on this big cultural disruption, right? So it's not, same with, you know, I I look at a lot of uh, artisanal craft kind of businesses I call it the artisanal cosmopolitan ideology. These shifts are they're very generative of, of, of new businesses across lots of categories. Um, but it's which one in every the, so the interesting thing is everybody knows about it at a superficial level. So all of these companies, everybody in the world is paying any attention, knows about the quote unquote trend, right? So it's clearly not following the trend that's going to get you the success. So like Chipotle is a great example. So Chipotle was it started in Denver. The the founder owner um, thinks started as a chef. So he so he was trying to make it um, a difference in the fast casual growing fast casual sector in Mexican food by um, not only making a, a tasty burrito but uh, you know one that is sourced better. Um, he did that for 10 years, I think in 2001 it was founded, um, with you know, modest success, you know, d- decent success, um, but not like huge breakthrough. And then along comes uh, this idea, like, let's go and and do, um, not advertising, but let's let's make a, what is basically this, these ideologue films. Um, they worked, I don't think he, he worked directly with uh, some folks in Hollywood. I don't think they worked with an ad agency. And so they made these, I mean, they're just uh, absolute, um, you know, critical, almost um, parables of the industrial food system, incredibly striking, powerful uh, little parables. They made two of them, I think. And they got so many shares and so many views and so much talk value um, that suddenly Chipotle was like, holy shit, they're like, here's fast food that is actually taking on the fast food system. <laughs> Nobody said it was easy. It's such a shame for us to part. Nobody said it was easy. No one ever said it would be so I'm going back to the start.
And another one that I that I love from your work and examples you've pulled out because and so we've looked at we've looked at Blue Buffalo, we've looked at Chipotle, they kind of share a common cultural theme or emerging or they were built on a disruption in culture. Another one is Jack Daniels. You know, Jack Daniels was a failing brand until they completely sort of shifted how they should talk about themselves. Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's a, one of my favorite cases. I'm, I'm, I'm recycling it again for my current book because it's a very good sort of teaching case because it really shows dramatically the power of how societal transformation is the engine for innovation. In Jack Daniels, they basically were handed the innovation on a platter. So they were, you know, they were trying to follow uh was kind of the Mad Men whiskey branding of the day. Everybody was, uh, all, the, all the brands were on trend, uh, trying to be uh, fashionable, kind of the, the jet-setting executive, alpha executive, I call him, that was, you know, riding around in planes, going to exotic vacations and having very nice whiskey because that was the new, if you looked at the GQ and the Esquires, that was the new construct that was the modern idea of masculinity for middle upper middle class men um supposedly that was that was taking hold and you know certain certain people bought into it but what was interesting is that it had sort of ideological flaws because we were riding straight into the cold war at the time and the the historic idea of masculinity based on the frontier the kind of gunfight on the frontier hadn't gone away it had became kind of the working class uh, ideal. Um, but once we went into the Cold War, all of a sudden elites, both in Hollywood, in Washington, political elites, um, cultural elites, galvanized around re- re- revitalizing this kind of Ernest Hemingway masculinity. And of course, all the media went looking for great stories to tell. And it's very hard to find great stories of, you know, of gunfighter. So this whole, this and this is this huge tectonic shift in culture, which which um, bore not only uh, Jack Daniels, but Marlboro, Harley Davidson, Jeep, uh, and we could go on, um, Mountain Dew, uh, uh, interestingly. Um, but you have magazines uh, going and sniffing around for ways to tell this different ideological tale um, where the frontier men really still exist. Uh, where is the subculture? And it's hard to find. Marlboro found it, or you know, Leo Burnett in West Texas and invented Marlboro country, where you, when you could still invent these things, today you can't. Um, uh, and Jack Daniels, they found, you know, Lynchburg, Tennessee, and they found this old distillery with guys with suspenders and making whiskey as they made it 100 years before and invented this mythos of, you know, the, the Jack Daniels distillery. And so the, the the whole brand, you know, globally till to this day is all built around what a couple of magazines basically launched and discovered and sort of inverted what, what was kind of, um, you know, the antithetic, you know, barefoot and pregnant Appalachian hillbilly. And they said, no, this is actually really where real men still exist and the real whiskey still exists and invented this. Uh, you know, ideal of masculinity based on um, that whiskey there. And, well, and wasn't Levi's somewhat similar to that same sort of uh, thread? Yeah, the, the problem though, I mean, it is phenomenal work and there's lots of phenomenal work that tries desperately to do cultural strategy, but the strategy is wrong. And so the work can't 
stick, you know, because there's not, they weren't, there was no, they weren't playing in a disruption where they're driving a new ideology, a new version of the frontier. Um, they were just, they, they were kind of making it up, but you have to figure out a way to draw to where um, there's a, a kind of Achilles heel in the down ideology in your category where it's not working, where people aren't identifying with it, where there's something bubbling up in subcultures that's, that's starting to get traction where you can drive it forward. And that's what that's what Nike did. That's what Jack Daniels did. That's, you know, Levi's didn't do that. Uh, you know, so it's not just Budweiser. How many times hiring famous agencies have they tried to re resuscitate their sort of claim on American manhood? And the reason it never works is because they're not put, they're not doing the proper historical analysis to find where the disruption opportunity is. I'd love you to talk about Starbucks through the, the lens of, of cultural strategy. What was happening in society or in culture at that time that provided such a great opportunity for that brand? The U.S. was never, uh, you know, versus compared to European countries, let's say, didn't have beyond sort of the top 1% of, you know, rich people, a, real, a very sophisticated approach to uh, expressive culture or to, you know, lifestyle stuff, food, drink, housing, et cetera. Um, for, for reasons, you know, we could talk at length, but there are, you know, historical demographic reasons for that. Um, but what happened is that we became a super wealthy country uh, in the post-war, but still kind of taste-wise, still sort of lodged in the past. But as our, you know, so we had, uh, education has a huge thing to de deal with it. So co college education took off in the US and became kind of democratized in the 60s. And so all of a sudden you had by the 80s, um, 20, 25% of, of kids getting raised by college educated parents and with lots of money. Um, comparatively, you know, richest country, richest country in the world. And that created, and they were going off and were traveling internationally and exposed to things you're exposed to in college. And all of a sudden, over the period of about a decade, 15 years, there was this huge demand for the cultural side, what we call cultural capital in academic terms, uh, more aesthetic, more sophisticated across any category where you could apply that, basically. You pick it, it was applied. So it's a very broad demand, cultural demand that's hitting the system. And where that demand gets uh, gets satisfied is you have entrepreneurs, again, cult, you know, cultural entrepreneurs who are mining subcultures that have already existed for a long time, and they're figuring out ways to take that into the mass market, into the mainstream market. Here, here you have this huge demand. How do you take, you know, craft beer, craft coffee, craft whatever, craft pickles, and, and drive it into the mainstream? That takes a particular approach that's different than just being the sub, uh, subculture producer. Because think about how subcultures work. You're always trying to outdo the other, you know, make a more kind of interesting esoteric craft beer, right? Or coffee. And that's how, you know, in the days of Starbucks where we started this, that's what was going on. So like Pete's was the center, you know, in North Berkeley. And it was all about like more interesting, you know, esoteric cheeses and breads. And, you know, it was very, I was there at the time. It was really cool because it was, you know, if you're into that, you know, more Epicurean connoisseurship, it was happening. 
but that only appeals to a certain small you know group of folks who are really into you know investing the time and energy and knowledge to really get into it most people aren't um but they do have there is this sort of status demand for more sophisticated stuff i'm not just going to drink folgers anymore i'm not just going to drink budweiser anymore so that's where you get this demand for the kind of more mass expression of these um very aestheticized artisanal craft uh, stuff coming out of these subcultures. So you have, I'll give you two examples, exactly the same. And I use them both in the, in the new book because so you can see the patterns. Um, but Starbucks, you mentioned, another one is uh, Jim Cook at Sam Adams. So there have been craft beer long before he came along, but he was the guy who took it into the mainstream market and he found the exact same strategy as Howard Schultz did at Starbucks. And what did he do in both cases? They decided we're not playing the subculture game. So Howard Schultz wasn't, you know, he wasn't uh, socializing the subculture. He was a coffee machine salesman who came upon Starbucks and said, ooh, this could be really a really good business. I want to get in on this. So he always, you know, was looking at the mainstream market and he had several failures to begin with, which I document in the book. So he's trialing different ways to mainstream Starbucks. And the, the, the challenge for him, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't making ads. They didn't make any ads. It was how do you, um, so you have this very powerful ideology, but it's also really off-putting in some ways to the Bobos. So how do you, so, so you're basically editing, you're taking the subculture, you want to sustain the power, the feel of sophistication and cosmopolitan feel. You walk into a Starbucks, you feel like you're in a different world. You're taking a break from work and that's uh, really nice. You're part of that world you want to be a part of, but you're not sort of challenged with, you know, coffee. You don't want to drink. You don't have to drink an espresso. You don't have to know about, you know, particular uh, Yerga Chefe beans and the, how they're dry washed and, you know, all the details, the kind of, you know, inside baseball stuff. So he was extremely good at creating, you know, em- viewing that space, architecting that space with this artisanal cosmopolitan ideology. Every decision was an ideological decision with that mainstream customer in mind. So no, we don't need to have them drink very bitter espressos. We can have a nice milky drink and even add some sugar to it, but we're gonna surround them with all these cues of making feel like they're at an Italian cafe or really know that farmer in Ethiopia. Dove with body positivity. I think is is um, it seems to be in terms of what a brand that everybody would recognize. Are there others that you're seeing emerging now that you think okay, I can see that they may be on to something, something more recent that you think uh, we should be keeping our eye on, or you're you're watching? Dove, unfortunately, is used as because it comes from Unilever, is used as an example of purpose branding, which is I just uh, you know I. Uh, it, it makes no sense. Dove is a, cla- a classic uh, cultural brand uh, example. And it, in fact, not only is a classic one, it's an old fashioned one. So let me explain. So it fits, it fits the uh, cultural strategy model to a T. Um, so they're competing in a category, um, you know, be- beauty products um, where Dove because it's this old soap brand used to, you know, it's a high-end soap, but it's not high-end in kind of beauty 
beauty products at all. So it's kind of you can't you can't kind of push it up market. So ideologically, it's kind of trapped. It wants to be premium, but it really can't be. It's kind of you know competing down with other you know PNG products and kind of mass consumer. Um, so what so what is the opportunity? It's to it's ideology. How do you channel? How do you disrupt the dominant ideology? The dominant ideology is is beauty culture. Um, you know, celebrating this impossibly, you know, the, 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 the fashion model version of beauty and uh, uh, the, the Vogue version, et cetera, that is, we, we all know for the previous, you know, 20, 30 years, but certainly taking off over the decade before Dove uh, launched was a very powerful critique of that beauty culture in both academia, bunch of books written, beauty myth, et cetera, and in feminist circles and sort of a new, you know, third wave feminism. So subculturally, this, you know, this was very developed, very done, but it was subcultural. It was academic. It was, it was very sharp and critical and esoteric in its terms and et cetera. But it recognized a big problem in beauty culture in that the feminist version of like body positivity and et cetera, that was really getting traction in you know, places like San Francisco and Portland, Riot Girls, et cetera. So there, it, it was everywhere at a subcultural level way before Dove. So here you have the subcultural ideology powerful getting traction. You can see it in the media. You can see it in kind of the, the edges um, and you can connect the dots very easily. So what do you do if you're a mainstream brand trying to restage and ride this? You, you figure out just like Howard Schultz did, just like Jim Cook did at uh, uh, Sam Adams, you need to figure out a way to make it very like digestible, easy to understand, persuasive, funny, poignant instead of a sharp, you know, feminist manifesto critique that it was in the subculture, which, you know, they did brilliantly in terms of connecting the dots. Yeah. Um, so it's not, there was no, it was no purpose. It makes no sense to call it a purpose brand. Then if, if, if Dove is a purpose brand, then so is Marlboro. Because it's exactly the same strategy as Marble or Jack Daniels. So they're all purpose brands or they're all cultural brands, but they're all following the same strategy, whatever term you want to use. And it doesn't, it's not, they didn't ask why. Why should we be in business? No. <laughs> they they followed this, they followed this model, much more pre precise model than purpose, um, which is why they uh, succeeded so well. And why do I call them old-fashioned? They're old-fashioned because that model of, of Dove of uh, uh, Marlboro, of some of the old uh, you know, post-war brands we were talking about before, you can't do that anymore. They're all big companies staging. Wouldn't Dove be considered an example of a big company that was able to restage? Or, or well, you... as, 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 as I said, yeah. At first of all, it, it's an example of cultural branding, not purpose. And I've explained why that is. And, you know, that was... 20 years ago or, you know, 17 years ago, whatever, when it started is pre-social media, consumer culture has moved forward in what we will consider as, you know, brands that we find authentic, persuasive, trustworthy, et cetera, that we want to believe in its ideology has to be, you know, it has to be the corporate entity has to walk the walk. I can't, no, I don't think people believe in Dove in that way and the way that they believe in Patagonia. And that's a problem for Dove, even though they, you know, they have great creative. It's 
it's it's completely different in terms of as a cultural symbol for that reason. Um, so it's so it's a, so it's a, just a, it's a basic handicap. It's not a critique. It's just like it's the way consumer culture and marketing work today. Is that you have a huge advantage if you're a small mid-sized company that is you know designed the whole company is built ideologically to incorporate that point of view rather than try and you know have a have a product brand that does that that's just one of you know your house of brands so and you know one of the other theories that's been going around for the last two decades too and i'd love to hear how you feel cultural uh, strategy is different is this idea of a challenger brand because there seems to be a lot of commonalities between the idea that these smaller brands this david and goliath comparison that challengers tend to define themselves within, or, or at least that theory does. How do, you, how do you think differently about challenger branding versus cultural strategy or challenger strategy versus cultural strategy? The difference is that, you know, I think cultural strategy is a comprehensive theory and model for building these kinds of brands. It's not just challenging and being different from the big brands and challenging them. It's how. It's the specifics and how. It's the same thing, problem of purpose. Yeah, you can have a purpose. Everybody has purpose, but then what's the strategy? And strategy has to be specific. And so unless you have the historical analysis of the category uh, to understand, to specify the disruption opportunity, the analysis of the subculture, figure out how the strategy, how you're going to use the subculture and take it uh, into the mainstream. And there are different techniques to do that. Um, and how to you know drive the ideology into the product, into the service, et cetera. So there's you know it's just not it's it's just one piece of the puzzle, I guess. Is there a way that you suggest or or what's the what's the approach to developing cultural strategy? I mean, I think the first thing to to ask is, is this do I have a business uh, problems, issues that a cultural strategy model is, the right one to use. It's not the only approach you can use. And it's really, it's a business strategy approach. So it's not just if I'm tweaking, trying to come up with a new ad campaign, if I'm trying to tweak my business in some way, it's the wrong approach because it is really, um, you know, I start using this, the term in the last book and more so over time, it's an innovation model. You know, it's disruptive innovation from a cultural standpoint. So if you're not up for disrupting your category, either restaging your business in a substantial way, starting a new business, um, then it's the wrong model because that's what it's built for. So I've done projects that are, you know, clients have much more kind of tactical interests and it, it doesn't go anywhere because that's not, it's not, it's not built for that. Um, you know, you're, you're better off using, using the other tools. So, so first of all is, you know, do, do you have the ambition to build, you know, a, a really big, powerful new business or, or salvage one that used to be powerful and and needs a lot of help. Um, those are those are the two usual cases where I'm where I'm called in and where where, where it works. And then there's you know the 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 method is to is to examine your category from a cultural standpoint. So you look instead of looking at you know what are the associations or value proposition whatever. Look at what is the dominant ideology of the category because brands always copy each other. They always do kind of the same thing with yeah. a whole different creative spin. And so there's a dominant ideology. Um, and then 
um, it gets it gets expressed in different ways. So there's a different myth. It gets built into packaging and visual identity. It gets expressed in product and the value proposition and particular features. Um, so I map the whole category out from a cultural standpoint. Then I say, okay, where's where's the Achilles heel? Where is is, is this solid? Is everybody is this you know this ideology not just in the in the product market, but let's look out in culture. Because this this ideology it doesn't just live in you know shoes or whatever it is, and you know where where are its weak spots? And you can there are you know cultural discourse techniques one can use and sociological techniques one can use to to spot those things and map those out. And then that leads you to you know where's the challenge coming from? Where are the where's the alternative ideologies that can push against this? And usually subcultures, movements, art worlds. I just use subculture as a, as a holding term, but all those kind of marginal spaces, sometimes they gather on the internet, I call them crowd cultures, um, where alternative ideologies take form. Sometimes, and, you know, and it's not just um, communications and stuff, it's technology, uh, it's it's everything. You can find these always, almost always um, these challengers, if there's really some kind of fault line, you can usually find somebody on the other side of the fault line that's already done a bunch of the work for you. Um, and so then, then there's a, a systematic, I'm not gonna have uh, time to, to walk through it today, you have to wait for the book, but I have a, a systematic approach to building the innovation construct that walks through all the, you know, say substitute for the four Ps, you know, walking through how do you build out this thing, starting with an ideology that's a challenger ideology. How do you build this out and then figure out a way to break, to disrupt the, the mainstream market? That's the challenge. And those are those are the details of, of the model. The big question that I think all of us are faced with is uh, where do we go after we've arrived? I mean, I think there could be a point made that that brands like uh, like Dove, maybe even maybe even Chipotle, uh, that they reach a it's not a plateau, but there's almost like a first staging where there's there's massive returns because they've connected around something in culture that's resonating and connecting. They've disrupted, but what about the next here? And this is not just a challenge in cultural strategy; it's a challenge in all strategy. I mean, do you have any tips for? Uh, what what comes in phase two? Because you're taking what's in a subculture into mass culture, which which by in essence diffuses its power over time. How do you then keep that fresh going forward? That's a, that's a great question. Yeah, I don't. It, it it doesn't really diffuse its power. It diffuses potentially within the subculture, and that's another challenge we haven't talked about. So in you know, even going back to how brands become icons, I talk about having two strategies. So there's a the, the market strategy, the, the mass market, mainstream market, and there's the market, I called it populist world for some reason back in how brands become icons, but there's the subculture strategy. And you need to have both because you can't, if you if you lose, you know, it feels like you're co-opting and monetizing subculture, you're not going to get very far. The key question is once you once you establish a brand, you become iconic, uh, a Starbucks or whatever, then what? And so two, two points. One, you, you, th there's extraordinary um, stability and, and power behind being an icon. So you really have to screw things up badly to kind of <laughs> lose your footing. Because, I mean, there's a, so I talk about in terms, you know, we talk in you know, tech circles, they talk about kind of the network power, social networks and economics, they talk about that. But there's a cultural 
network effect here, or sociocultural one that iconic brands have because they're so embedded in, you know, in popular culture, they're ubiquitous. So it's, you know, you can sort of, you know, milk them for quite a long time and they, they have a half a life. They lose, they lose their value, but it, it takes a while and you really have to screw things up to, 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 to make them, you know, dilute quickly, let's say. But that being said, they do, they do over time, you know, five, 10 years um, lose value. So the key thing is to continue to lead culture. So that you can think of that in two ways. One is, so you're establishing a new dominant ideology. Starbucks established a new, you know, 2.0 coffee, the coffee world. How do you um, stay as a, play a leadership role in that is one question. And then two, how do you anticipate the next disruption opportunity? And instead of allowing somebody come and come disrupt you, that you become the, as incumbent, the disruptor. Um, so, you know, two, two ways to, to play it. One is kind of short midterm and the other is a little bit longer. And I, and I talk in the last book, I actually I include Starbucks and I have Starbucks a short version in this new book too, but they, they did a really good job of exactly that. So they, um, you know, they led with this artisanal cosmopolitan ideology really around, you know, craft coffee and, you know, a bunch of competitors came in, a bunch of the, the, the third wave came in, the micro roasters, um, you know, McDonald's was copying them. It was, you know, it was co commoditized pretty quickly. So how do you, how do you stay in the lead in that? It, and it really depends what's going on in that ideology in the broader culture. So if you look at, instead of being locked into, you know, coffee and so forth, if you look at artisanal cosmopolitan ideology as it was getting played out across other categories in popular culture at the time, one of the huge things going on in the late 90s, early 2000s was the uh, uh, sustainable supply chain, sort of making uh, supply chains transparent and using the supply chain to brand. So they blew it out globally. It became a global campaign for like three or four years around they developed their own kind of ethical supply chain piece and just screamed and shouted about it. And so that's an example of kind of the more kind of sustainable cultural advantage within the dominant ideology. How do you keep it fresh and how do you keep stay relevant? There's all sorts of ways to do that. If you know, if you think, if you're thinking about it in cultural strategy terms, there's all sorts of ways to keep pushing forward. But then eventually you have to watch, you know, is there, is my whole, the whole sort of segment that I've developed going to be disrupted? And that's something that you have to have kind of the long-term antennae out for. So the books are How Brands Become Icons. That's the first book. The second book uh, is Cultural Strategy. Do you have a title yet for the, the book that comes out in 2022? Uh, we're, we're still debating it. So I don't, uh, I don't have one to share with you today, but I am I'm very excited. I take on two big topics, which I think are are crucial that I haven't before. One is uh, technology um, and cultural strategy can work really powerfully in, in technology. Uh, and we've never really realized, even though, you know, Steve Jobs, in my estimation, was, you know, pioneer cultural innovator, but he's never thought of in that way. And so we've never really tried to build new apples. And so I'm trying to convince people to give that a shot. And then the other one is purpose, and purpose is, it's, it's a weird topic, because in one sense, it's like a very dumbed down, 
uh, attempt to do cultural strategy and it just, you know, it just doesn't work. It's like, you don't ask why and then follow why. No companies that's successful has ever been built that way that I know of, uh, including the ones that are called purpose companies. Uh, it's a post hoc slapping of purpose onto it for some reason. But then the other is more, you know, purpose is being used to egg, com- you know, companies feel that they need to sh- show that they have uh, are contributing to society and solving the environmental crisis and so forth. Um, and so there we get into, um, you know, social innovation, social enterprise, um, those sorts of companies, which I've spent a bunch of my career working with, you know, Ben and Jerry's, Patagonia, REI, New Belgium, so forth. And there's a bunch of learning from those companies on how to do that. And the whole purpose industry has taken off pretending as if, you know, that 30-year history of figuring out how to do social mission companies uh, doesn't exist. Yes, <laughs> we're exactly gonna right. We're going to reinvent it. So so that that's the uh, the third section of the book is kind of, you know, let's, let's focus. If we really want to fix society and fix capitalism, we can learn a lot from uh, those companies through the lens of cultural strategy. So it's Douglas Holt, author, professor, and president of Cultural Strategy group uh, based in uh, right now in Bristol, England. Uh, I love your work, Doug. Thank you, man, for coming on. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Of course. A lot of fun. And we'll see everybody in the next episode.